your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. Okay, today we're talking about what your children will remember. And, you know, it's it, being a father of two, it's pretty amazing to me how much our kids pick up on uh, things that we say, things that we do, uh, just our little colloquialisms, our mannerisms, uh, how we behave. Uh, and th- there's just so many things that they pick up on. But what's more uh, concerning is that they carry a lot of those things forward into their life. As uh, we uh, pass on, they tend to regurgitate all of our mistakes and all of our our flaws and all of the things that they've picked up from us and continue those if they're, as if they're a legacy. And they may not be things that we're proud of. They may not be things that we want them to do, but we allow ourselves to get away with it and therefore they end up uh, picking up on those things. So, you know, all of the childhood experiences we've had with our parents, which m- memories do we carry into adulthood is the real question. You know, parents under the pressure of meeting their children's nutrition, their medical, their education, their emotional and social needs, you know, the responsibility to raise a child can be really challenging. You know, striving to provide the necessities, parents can overlook deeper questions of purpose and meaning. And, and so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what, what's going to be the most important difference in the lives of our children? One way of assessing the future impact of the efforts uh, to raise them is to consider what children remember best about their childhood, what adults remember best about their childhood relationships, especially with their parents. You know, it's not surprising that remember the big items that like trips and and, uh, cruises and vacations and Disneyland, but are those events really the one that make the most important impact on us? You know, the, the most memorable childhood experiences reflect critical qualities of the relationship that's formed between the child and the parent. So relationships develop over time as products of the ordinary interactions that become special by their ordinariness. And so when uh, really extraordinary experiences take on life uh, challenging attributes, it's often because they culminate or reveal the meaning of less dramatic interactions that, that basically life has altogether. So we have to, 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 to look at in the world of, of competing obligations, you know, it can be easy to forget the need a child has to feel special. And what activity fills the time together is less important than the fact that the time spent was spent together. You know, uh, you can look at your eight-year-old experiences of maybe going to a ball game with with your dad or or going to something special uh, event with your mom, maybe maybe a, a, a wedding or something going to church or whatever or going over to a friend's house you know the bottom line is these simple experiences of interacting are very 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 important you know uh you know knowing what's special to your children 
is in completely important for parents to do. And and if we don't know that and if we don't make them feel special and if we don't recognize that we have to spend time with them, that we can't leave them always to their own devices, we, we really have to develop a childhood for them where we bring some of the best qualities that we may or may not have. But, you know, if we don't have them, maybe we ought to learn to bring them and learn to change. You know, um, ordinary can actually uh, trump the extravagant um, memorability uh, of a big experience, especially something that costs a ton of money. You know, a child develops trust when they come to know that dad can be relied on and, and the very absence of being flashy reflects the stability of a relationship that can be counted on. You know, uh, uh, we're always together at holidays or camping or ice skating. Those are things that a child remembers. You know, building a tree house or climbing a tree or making a fort. You know, it's the always together that conveys the knowledge that a meaningful relationship is the one that lasts by virtue of its being part of an ordinary life. And so, once again, consistency can be more important than those special events. And I'm not trivializing special events, but, you know, we remember the difficult times as well as the happy ones. Not all memories of childhood reflect romanticized ideal experiences. Many illustrate how we archive adverse events such as a job loss or accidents or illness or death. Even during the most difficult circumstances, parents have the opportunity to give their child the most important gifts, the assurance they are loved, the wisdom to appreciate what is most valuable, and and a model for coping with the adversity with dignity and understanding that suffering can actually be meaningful when it's endured as part of living for uh, our loved ones. You know, one uh, people, when they look back on their life, they can be very proud of the way they pulled together when things were hard. You know, we, we remember enjoying good times and surviving hard times with our parents. Some of the most memorable experiences are the times we are, are encouraged and comforted and offered advice. You know, moms and dads often express their support in different ways. Moms might uh, comfort with a hug or a special meal. And d- dads are often remembered for their pragmatic approach to acceptance and moving on. You know, uh it's important that, that w- why do we get up in the morning to see that there's a new day, uh, and I'm religious, so God, you know, has presented us with a new day and an opportunity to bond even greater with our child. You know, uh, memories may range from being comical to devastating. Th- those of the greatest uh, value center on how the parent and child relationship contributes to who we become and to our sense of purpose and meaning. So what you want to do is reach back into your life and wonder what were the big experiences for me with my parent and hopefully you will try to integrate some of those experiences if they match your child's personality with them. You know, uh, you want to make your family something you're proud of and, and give 
that gives you a reason to live. And it's important to know that that is your job, that once you have a child, your job is to be their parent first, not their best friend, but their parent. And, and that means that you show them your love, you show them that you're looking out for them, you show them consistency, you show them they're safe, but also you show them that their life is meaningful and that you do things. And and, and it's important. And I remember uh, when I was young, uh, my dad never said I love you. Never, 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 never. But uh, eventually, as I was about maybe 10 years old, he started to say it. And that was probably one of the greatest memories of my childhood is hearing my dad actually say, I love you. Very, very hard for him to do, but he did it. And then ever since then, from that point, he said he had said it. Now, he's passed, but I am so grateful that he at least shared that. I'm proud of him, and I never forget to say I love you to my children and, and to my wife. You know, and telling them that you're proud of them. That those are big, powerful words, and they create lasting memories. So don't trivialize the idea that you can make an enormous impact on your child's life that lives well beyond your life and may actually live beyond their life with their children. You know, um, uh, it's interesting. Child memory is something that many, many people in uh, psychology and in science have tried to look at. And, and if you even look at uh, John Jean Piaget, which was uh, he was he conducted a lot of famous experiments, and basically he built the uh, basis for what our school systems, our public school systems, used to be. They're nothing like that anymore. But he he basically founded the the way that children should be taught. You know, and he developed a thing called object permanence in which an object was covered up and so the baby seemed to forget about it. So Piget concluded that the baby had been unable to store the memory for the object out of sight, out of mind. Even infants are aware of the past, however, and as really a lot of other experiments since then have shown, babies can't speak, but they can imitate. And if shown in a series of actions with props, even six-month-old infants will repeat a three-step sequence a day later, nine-month-old instance a month later. You know, so the conventional wisdom for older children has also uh, been uh, 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 overturned in many ways. You know, once uh, uh, children's... uh, age or to to believe to have memories of the past, but nearly no way to organize those memories, Uh, that's usually somewhere before three years old, where they sort of remember something, but pretty much they don't. I don't think I have many memories uh, before I was three years old, but three, three and a half is generally when kids start to stick with that sense of memory. Uh, Some are better than others. You know, Far from having no memories at all, very young children remember a lot like adults. In early infancy, the the neural structures critical for memory are coming online. The hippocampus, which is very roughly in charge of sorting new memories, and the prefrontal cortex, which is very roughly the in charge of retrieving those memories. And that's basically where our humanness is, is in our prefrontal cortex. So, you know... If you think of memory, it's not like one big uh, uh, piece 
piece of lasagna noodles. Memories are made up of little tiny bits of information that are coming in literally across the entire cortex. So part of the brain are taking those little bits of information and knitting them together into something that's going to endure and be a memory. So, uh, you know, adults have uh, a fine mesh net to catch the memories. Babies have a big hold colander, so they don't happen to catch everything. They happen to forget a lot of things. Babies remember far more than anyone thought, however, uh, but a lot less than adults. It's only around 24 months, actually, that children seem to get better uh, colanders, meaning they get less space that stuff can drop through. They get a better uh, catching of the memory and the information that makes a memory out of experiences. You know, the, the past also gets sticky. You know, memories no longer slip away from a couple months. Children a few months under two retain memories of experiences a year earlier uh, and half uh, their lifetime ago. But they don't retain those memories into adulthood. No one remembers their second birthday party. Hardly anyone. And for a few reasons. You know, there, there's, uh, there's neural structures. Uh, there's a lack of knowledge to make sense of those experiences. A lack of language to represent the experiences. And it's almost impossible for any part of our lives before 24 months to, to, to stick around into adulthood. And that's simply because we don't have the ability to interpret what's going on. And what makes the first memory stick into adulthood? We have to ask ourselves that. This is where the where early memory takes an unexpected turn. Once memories start to stick, how long they stick around may be less of a uh, question from neurologically than a social question. And and so, you know, psychologists have spent a lot of time listening to how parents talk to their children, specifically how parents negotiate with the very stubborn truth of parenthood that children aren't any good at talking back. Kids can't keep up their end of a conversation. When discussing the past, parents get around the problem in a couple of different ways. They might ask specific repetitive questions about past events, or they might narrate the past detailed, elaborative way, asking the child questions and then incorporating their answers into the narrative. So basically, the parent might structure their past memory by the way the parent interprets. You know, also, psychologists have uh, spent uh, uh, a lot of time uh, listening to how parents talk. And so kids, you know, can't kids, when they're doing a, a very elaborative efforts uh, of uh, mothers, when they're working towards moms and they're tending to, to spend a lot of time with mom, they tend to have earlier and richer memories uh, because the mom is usually the safer of the two adults in the child's brain. That's not to say that's always the case, but the deal is that many of the memories a child's going to have before three years old if it sticks, is likely going to be something they did with their mother or the safest parent. You know, if you uh, look at the conversational styles, uh, when children remember and talk about their past, they, they effectively relive the event and they, they basically relive the event many times in the way that it was told to them by a parent who actually remembered the experience probably better than they did. And so that's really an interesting thing about childhood is that 
parents do not realize that they're creating a narrative for their child's memories before their child has the ability to remember. And that narrative is going to stay with them throughout the course of their life, and it will integrate into their ability to have a memory. So, you know, it's really important to train parents to talk about the past in a way that the child needs to remember and it helps them as far as how they feel about themselves. If we're going to interpret memories in a negative way and in a negative light and then load them up into our children, what's basically going to happen is they're going to have a negative experience about themselves. So it's very important for, for parents not only to parent well, but also to preserve memories for their children and make sure that those memories are something the child really, really treasures. All right. Now, we're also talking about the parental influence. You know, uh, children observe their parents very closely. They appraise their parents very carefully. They know their parents better than the parents do the child. And, uh, you know, because the positional power difference makes the inequality necessary for them to really be able to interpret that parent. When another person has more vested power in a relationship, you tend to compensate for the disadvantage by scrutinizing that person in greater detail than they do you. And so you want to get whatever edge of understanding and influence you can to indirectly manage or manipulate the other person who has greater force of direct control. So in organizations, the subordinate usually knows the superior better. In peer groups, the follower knows the leader better. In society, minority knows majority better. And in marriages, the abused knows the abuser better. So in prisons, the captive knows the jailer better, and so on and so forth. That's just our instincts. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue to talk about parents' influence, but uh, we're also going to talk about how to develop a very strong and influential parent-child relationship. Come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. 
Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about what children remember about their parents. And, you know, it's important to understand also that, uh, and as a marriage family therapist, you see this constantly, that a lot of people will do what their parents did when they were married. And boy, oh boy, do that get, that gets them in some big trouble because the problem is their parents grow up in a different time and with a different environment, with different social factors, with all kinds of different expectations, different societal rules, uh, different technology. And what people don't realize is a lot of those techniques that their parents used don't always fit in the day and age that we operate. And so that model of marriage can be very frustrating because it doesn't meet the needs of either partner. Uh, Communication styles, well, our parents didn't teach us how to text each other. Our parents didn't teach us how to use the technology, the Facebook and all that kind of crazy stuff that's out there, the social media, all the ways that we communicate uh, via voicemail, via cell phones, All that stuff is not something in which we were brought up with, many of us. And so our parents happened to uh, teach us a prehistoric way to be marriage. And then we go and model that into an evolved lifestyle. And what happens is is that the two people are going to crash into each other. And so, you know, that's why it's important. And I'm I'm not going to go off on a tangent here, but it's very important to try to get counseling when you're married so that you can learn how to be married to each other and not simply model all the good and the bad things that you learned from your parents. But, you know, parents, you create a legacy with your children by how you parent them. And uh, if, if you don't get it right, oftentimes they end up mimicking all of the bad things and all of the good things or some of the good things or some of the bad things that you did. And they find themselves repeating uh, things that you did that they weren't uh, too hot on. And so it's kind of sad, but 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 that's the way things go. And uh, so once again, uh, marriage pre premarital counseling is a great idea. So you know, parents vastly underestimate how closely they're observed and how constantly they are evaluated. You know, in 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 their superior position, parents prefer to think that they know the child best. Perhaps this is for the best. Otherwise, being the object of of relentless uh, scrutiny might make parents too self-conscious for their own comfort. From childhood to adolescence to young adulthood, the judgmental 
thrust of the child's evaluation tends to change. So the child tends to idealize the parents. The adolescents tend to criticize the parents and the young adult tends to rationalize the parenting received. And and so, you know, it, it turns out kind of different. You know, the child up to eight to nine admires, even worships parents for their capability of what they can do and the power of approval that they possess. The child wants to relate on parental terms, they want to enjoy parental companionship, they, they imitate the parents wherever possible, and the child wants to be like and be like and be liked by their parents and are mostly uh, positively evaluated by their parents, assuming they're not uh, damaging or dangerous to live with. You know, a child identifies with parents because they provide a primary model to follow after and to live up to. So childhood evaluation of parents begins with idealization, which means it's a it's you're godlike, and at, at at the onset the parents are usually too good to be true at least for long. Now comes adolescence, beginning around nine to thirteen, and the parents get kicked off the pedestal. In the girl or boy's childhood, they could do no wrong. Come adolescence, it seems they can do no right. So what is causes sudden fall from grace? Well, have the parents changed? No, but the child has, and with cause. To begin, the separation from childhood and from parents and family starts in adolescence. So the young person has to reject some of the old lifestyle that branded them as a child. And so they want to free up growing room from the journey to independence ahead. And so through this attitude and actions, that person, that young person is saying, I'm no longer want to be defined and treated as a child anymore. And so, you know, to look at that, the, the, a part of adolescence is about giving up some of the good child and letting more of the bad child out. So bad doesn't mean evil or immoral or illegal. It simply means more abrasive to live with, becoming more critical, dissatisfied, argumentative, passively resistant, moody, distant, less cooperative, less compliant to live with. This transformation, however, cannot be accomplished without the negative change in reputation of the parents as well. And so that's just the the that's just the sad truth that we all have to deal with. You know, like it or not, parents who have grown accustomed to being perceived in a positive light by their adoring child must now accept being cast in a more negative uh, role, one that is fault-finding by the adolescent. So, the, you know, the early adolescent needs to have bad parents to justify letting their bad child out. And, and it's not just me, uh, you know, them being hard to live with, but you are too hard to live with. And now the, the, the parent in public becomes more problematic. To be seen in their presence by friends diminishes the sense of social independence, while the parents' uh, habits and characteristics can be personally embarrassing. You know, do you always have to dress that way? Do you always have to act that way? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? All that parenting of them in a critical way is embarrassing for the child. So they do not want to be seen and interpreted through their parents' eyes to their friends. They want to be interpreted by their peers. And they do not want the parent there to try to interpret how uh, they should be seen. 
And, and so this is something that we as parents have to really, really look at. You know, the, the adolescent evaluation becomes more critical of parents which in, uh, with increased conflicts over fr- freedom, and it remains that way through the rest of adolescence. And so to justify the independence from parents, that's what they're doing. You know, uh, you're being unfair. You never let me do anything. You're overprotective. More complaints are basically in store for parents of adolescence. And this, you know, it's not a bad thing. After all, if parents weren't considered difficult to live with, uh, why ever would they want to leave? Of course they're going to want to leave. They're going to want to leave by their 18 because they're sick of being labeled by their parents. So if the parent doesn't evolve with the child and understand that they are, are oftentimes an embarrassment to the child to be around their friends. So, you know, it's, it's a, very cool to have a parent that actually understands this and gets to know their child and actually isn't at war with their child throughout their childhood and actually evolves with the child, wanting them to become independent. So, God forbid, we actually do the job of being parents and actually raise a child to become an adult. You know, now uh, in the early to mid-20s, adolescence ends and the young adulthood begins. And so with that, there's a period of self-evaluation that soon implicates the parents. The young adult question is simply this, why did I turn out the way I am? And in answering this question, the young person looks back over their personal history and they begin to identify a lot of significant events and particularly influential people that shape their development. So this is where parents come to focus. By commission, by omission, how did they contribute to the young person's growth? And the answer is both positive and negative because no matter how well-intended a parent is, they, they uh, come with a mix of strengths and, and, and weaknesses and wisdom and stupidity and good choices and bad choices. And so what's at stake for this young person is coming to terms with the acceptance of having imperfect parents who provided not just help growing up, but also hurt. And so that, in a sense, affects them because now they have flaws that they integrated in their personality that the parents hammered down their throats by example or by process or by witnessing what they are doing or by words, all that stuff has hurt them and now they got to get over it. And so many children in young life resent their parents for all of the things that they loaded on them as a child. And so this process of reflection is, is conducted when apart from the parents, when the young person is leading their own separate life. And so the hard part of the process is the beginning because before the position of parental influence can be claimed, the negative influence must be acknowledged and this requires the child's rationalization, putting it into a place of understanding that can encompass and mix the positive and the negative influences of parents. And so what's also important is during the 20s, during the 30s, it's really critical that the child begin to humanize their parents, not look at them as their parents, but look at them as human beings and reevaluate what role those parents will play in their life. You know, I know my parents weren't pu- perfect. They, you know, they love me, but they made a lot of mistakes and they, they got caught up in themselves. They weren't always there. Uh, They made some decisions like divorce, which were hurtful, had lasting effects. And and during that uh, 
negative phase of evaluation that you go through as a young person, you socially pull away, reduce communication to evaluate that painful history, and uh, then when you resume contact with a positive evaluation, it finally has begun to be put in place, but that takes time. And so many parents, you're very lucky if you have a good relationship with your child because during that 20s, during that 30s process, they're trying to integrate and reshape all of the negative experiences that they had as a child that they just assumed were a part of who they are because they saw themselves through their parents. You know, the uh, negative phase of adult evaluation can be very scary for parents when uh, the the contact and the communication falls away. But, but it also can be an understanding patient uh, uh, growth period for parents to hold themselves in, in loving readiness and in re- rationalization, which leads to reconcil- reconciliation as acceptance of a meaningful adult relationship. And so, you know, that's called having something where you're connected. And, and so that is a huge thing. You know, um, when it comes to how those kids on the receiving end evaluate our parenting, you know, we're, we're never as good as our children wanted to believe or bad as our adolescents frequently complained us about us. And mostly we turned out performing about as well as one uh, as a person can can do. You know, parenting is never a perfect job. It's good enough. And that's about all you can get as a parent. And it never hurts to get counseling to learn how to be a parent. Not a bad idea so that maybe you can minimize some of the mistakes that you've made early in life or what you've brought to the early life of your child. You know, the issue is not the parents necessarily agreeing with the person's assessment of their parenting, just accepting that the evaluation rings true from their grown child. Many parents don't want to accept how their children has envisioned their life and how they envisioned their life with their parents. Not a lot of children uh, come away, especially in early childhood, with great uh, raving reviews of their uh, parents. You know, one of the perks of being parents is that you get to be introduced, uh, you get to introduce your kid to the world. And so that's, that's a cool thing. I remember you know, with with my children, watching the world through their eyes was a way to reawaken the value of life, to understand, wow, even the little itty bitty things, they can take a, a, a bag full of straws and actually play with them for two hours. And it's amazing what they see in the, the straws. You know, I'm just using that as an example. But, you know, not all of the things that we, uh, our childhood uh, is made up of are real. A lot of it's in our imagination, and it's very important for them to have that imagination and to be able to create things that necessarily we as parents can't concretely uh, identify with. We have to enjoy the fact that they have their own memories and their own creation of reality basically through their imagination. And the greater they have of an imagination, the greater in Uh, intellect they're going to have later in life because that means their brain is expanding and it's using all of those channels and it's exercising itself as a muscle and it's building on itself. The greater a child's imagination, oftentimes the greater their intelligence will be and their wisdom will be in life. You know, it's it's very important that when you're an infant, when, when there's an infant, 
you know, it, it requires us to plan, 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 and to create lots of structure so that that infant has not only a safe opportunity to explore, but has a great opportunity to explore and see the possibilities of life. You know, uh, many parents simply stay put. And so uh, they believe the kid's never going to remember it anyway. But they have to understand that the kid is learning, the child as an infant is learning how to socialize. And that's a very important thing for them to do. So staying in your home when the child is just a baby is not always a good idea. You want to get them out and about because they are picking up on social skills. They are mimicking. They are learning. And maybe they're not going to apply that learning until they're three, four, or five years old. So that's a very important thing for parents not to just sit in their homes when a baby is just a baby, but also not, I'm not suggesting you spend all your time outside, uh, but what you're doing is you're creating impressions on their life and they're beginning to develop that. You know, parents might think of memory in terms like, uh, you know, remember that great restaurant we went to on our honeymoon or did I forget our anniversary? You know, uh, one of the big contributions of, of uh, psychology and neuroscience over the past decades is to unpack memories into different categories. You know, uh, vocational, uh, vacational or not vacational. You know, that, that's important. Uh, vacational means they're pleasure-based memories. They're, they're explicit memories. And they, recall, they have a recall that is conscious and it's generally associated with the time and a place. And so every time we're associated with a certain time or place, some of those memories come back and come forward. Also, uh, there's implicit memories, which is more value-driven, and that's not about specific events, but it's instead more of about an unconscious emotional recollection of a time and a space. Well, guess what? A lot of the impressed memories of children prior to about 12 years old our unconscious and emotional recollection. And so that's more of less of the visual and more of the emotional recollection. And so if you create havoc with a child's life emotionally when they're young, uh, what you're going to do is create an unconscious uh, fear and an insecurity in them and a rebellion and anger in them and resentment that basically uh, they may carry into their adult life and they may not even remember how it came about. You know, it's important to have a lot of good, strong feelings whenever we have feelings, but it's also good to be safe with our feelings, especially with children as they're getting impressions of us. All right, that's that's our next uh, block. We're going to have one more block talking about parent and child uh, memories. Uh, We're going to talk about how early uh, people remember and the difference between females and males and also what sticks. So come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. 
Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something that is unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune in to Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about what children remember about their parents and the memories that they carry out of their childhood. You know, kids begin forming what are called explicit memories around the two-year mark. Explicit memories have a, a, a time and a date. They remember a certain event. Uh, after about two, you know, they may remember a little bit about Disneyland or they may remember going to some kind of a camp or preschool or some kind of birthday party or something. They may remember some explicit events. Uh, however, they have to be usually kids are somewhere around seven years old when they have implicit memories, which is when they're starting to develop their value system. When they're trying to, when they're actually remembering things from an emotional perspective or from a visual perspective or from an experiential perspective. So, you know, it's around seven. Uh, basically, most kids have childhood amnesia uh, prior to seven years old in many, many ways. Uh, but somewhere around three years old, preschool, that is the turning point when explicit memories begin to get more frequent and detailed and adult-like. And by six or seven, your kid's memory is similar to yours. So maybe your eight-year-old can help you remember what you ate this morning, which I, I couldn't even remember that right now, and I'm, I'm older than 
dirt. So, <laughs> you know, don't judge an experience by whether or not your preschool will cherish it forever. If the kid has fun, even if they don't remember the experience, that's nothing to sneeze at in terms of forming a, a worldview that life can be enjoyable. You know, it sets a global expectation that the world is a nice place and people are good to me. And these are the kinds of things people are building up in their early years of their life. That's what they're doing with their children is they're saving the world can be a fun place. Your, your, your kid, thankfully, is not likely going to remember their birth, but if you keep bringing up the story about how you raced their mom to the hospital in the, in the blizzard uh, and uh, that they may have a little memory of the event uh, as you were white-knuckle driving uh, – and it, and it becomes part of, of their memory, too, once again, because they're integrating it from the memory of their parents. So how you reflect on things is how they visualize things. I remember um, being told the story of my mom. She had an accident on a bridge by our house, and it was not a, a deep bridge. It's not like if the car would have fallen off uh, that, that uh, you know, anybody was going to be severely hurt. But the car was hanging by the back um tires uh, off the bridge and she had my sister get out of the car and go up and get my dad and so my sister got out of the car and she ran up and got my dad and my dad came down and obviously got my mom out of the car which probably wasn't a great choice to have my sister do something like that in that kind of a position but I don't remember any of that but I guess I was a baby and what's interesting is is I have that memory in my brain as it might have happened, and it's very clear how it might have happened, but it was all described to me by my parents and by my sister. So that's interesting that we can actually have a memory and a clear recall of something that we never, ever experienced as a child, which is another interesting thing. So, you know, once again, we introduce uh, a lot of possibly false details uh, into people's memories and to children's memories when they're young. We have a great deal to do as parents with how they shape those memories. You know, very few of us have a lot of uh, memory recall, um, especially as we get older. But memories that are uh, suffused with emotion fit into a greater context and are more likely to form earlier and last longer. If there's an emotional content, usually a memory will stick a lot longer. If there's not an emotional content, there's a high possibility that the memory uh, wasn't, isn't going to stick very much from the child's perspective. I, I also recall, and it's interesting, I don't know how old I was. I think I was probably about five years old. We were at the Kansas City Zoo, and my mom got a lemonade and I remember there were bees in the trash can and they came out of the trash can and they totally attacked and stung my mom left, right, center. They stung and stung and stung and stung her. And it was crazy to watch that. But I remember all the people that tried to help to stop and she was okay. I mean, she got through it. It wasn't fun. But uh, I, I remember implicitly and, uh, and explicitly that memory just because of the emotional content uh, of dealing with that. 
And so, you know, that that's something, once again, if you pair up emotionality, which we don't know how our children are going to in, or uh, remember things. We don't know how they're emotionally going to engage with things, but they're going to have uh, more memories if they're a more emotional child. You know, uh, memory experts are beginning to think that parents who talk a lot about the past play a big role in the number of memories kids form and how early they form them. And this is especially true for fathers and sons. You know, um, parental influence is huge, as I was speaking, with uh, uh, memories, and particularly when they're uh, the effect of gender-specific parent-child combinations. You know, young adults like 18 to 28 are often asked, or have been asked in studies to recall as many memories involving parents as they could from their preschool years before six. And, and uh, you know, if you had warm parents that spent a lot of time talking about the past, uh, the males remembered more of early life, but also had memories from farther back in their lives when they had a warm parental uh, uh, models for themselves. And the next time you look at your preschool, you might want to think they'll never remember this. You may be right, but they probably uh, won't. But take comfort in the fact that because they won't, they uh, have total recall. Uh, this is helping, and it's called their formative years. It's helping them form uh, who they are. You know, how early uh, people remember females generally, although it's not always the case, exhibit superior retention of episodic memories than males. Uh, and that was in a 2014 report by Wang and Peterson. You know, the gender differences, according to the researches, may reflect the development of life narratives in late childhood and early adolescence, where girls often tell lengthier and more coherent life stories than boys. And, and uh, the narrative organization of life events may allow girls to a uh, better memory of the events over time compared with boys. You know, um, uh, the earliest childhood memories might begin even earlier than anyone realized based on that study, including the rememberer. You know, their parents uh, and their parents um, may be the memory researchers, in fact, and the parents may have to go back and try to recall things they didn't recall uh, or don't recall uh, currently because they're reminded by the child. Once they're reminded by the child, they may go back and be able to have a more accurate memory. However, females tend to have and mothers tend to have a better recollection of how things uh, happen. You know, um, Adults, you know, as far as earliest childhood memories, too, tend to grab on to what their childhood life was like. And what we do as children, it's interesting, and that we carry forward into our adult life is our parents' memories. And so by the stories that they've told us. And so, you know, I remember uh, my grandma was telling me about her uh, father was the sheriff of a very, very small town in uh, Patriot, Indiana. And uh, told the story of, she told me the story of her grandfather. There was a guy that swam across the Ohio River from Kentucky to Patriot. And he was at a bar and he was drunk and he was basically harassing this girl. And somebody called my, uh, my great-grandfather 
who was the sheriff. And my great-grandfather took a, 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 a whip off a tree, basically a limb off a tree that was like a whip, and he spanked this guy with the whip until he ran to his boat and or ran to the Ohio River and swam back across to Kentucky. And I can see, because of pictures and because of the way my grandma described the way that all this came about, I can actually have a memory in my brain that I never actually have, but it's carried forward as a story uh, through my grandma's memory into my own memory. And so it's interesting how we allow ourselves to do that. It's a very important thing for us to understand that uh, we are able to generate memories in our children. So now, let's look at what sticks. When, when you think back on your childhood, what do you remember the most? Is it the good times or the bad? You know, the times you went on a vacation or the times you were home, when the times you were, uh, you know, making memories with your children doesn't have to be complex. However, you should try to keep in mind that, that childhood is, is full of lasting memories. And uh, you want to give your child good memories of their childhood and try to think back on your own memories also, you know, so the bad, you know, anger is one thing that contain many childhood memories. You know, if, if uh, you grow up with angry parents or an angry father, somebody that has a very bad temper, uh, verbally abusive, somebody, it can really totally affect the memories of a child greatly. You know, even the good times are marred by the irritation, the impatience and the angry words. You know, uh, so, you know, the usually uh, maybe the mother might try to protect uh, the child from the anger. And so uh, she may have many difficulties with it herself. So, you know, maybe the mother ends up being the protector because the father is angry. Or maybe the father ends up being the protector because the mother is angry. And so this can be uh, something that creates uh, a helicopter parent, you know, um, Helicopter parents are the parents that are having to deal with another angry parent, so they hover over their child. They just hover, 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 because one of the one of the parents isn't emotionally balanced, creates an anxiety, and so anxiousness also anxiety is another thing that children tend to carry on in their life. If they have an anxious parent, they tend to carry on anxiety within themselves because now the world is full of fear. So uh, anxious, overprotective parents can create an anxious child that grows up into an anxious adult. Also, disrespect, you know, uh, parents that don't listen. You know, if you do not listen to your children, that is called disrespect. That means that their life does not have meaning. You know, people that are poor listeners are, are uh, very disrespectful. You know, disrespect comes from the lack of listening. So what we have to understand, if we are not good listeners as parents, uh, we are disrespecting our children and they're learning that that's okay not to listen to you and also not to listen to other children. And so we as parents have a responsibility to do things that are important. Number one, we need to admit our mistakes. We need to take time with our children to listen, to play, to pay attention. We need to, to be adaptable to the good things and we need to stop interpreting Every single thing a kid does is a bad thing and start to look at the process of what and how the child decided to make a decision rather than criticizing the very decision that they made.
You know, childhood is a time of forming memories through through patterns that will last for the rest of our lives. And so you want to make sure that your children have memories that build them up and make them better adults, not ones that tear them down and make them resentful and afraid. As parents, we will always make mistakes. However, we can still make our child's memories something to cling to when it comes to time for them to raise their own children. That is critical. All right. That's our show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you, drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or uh, uh, the uh, uh, Voice America Empowerment Channel, and that would be the webpage in which I'm on. Now remember, when you decide to become a parent, from that point forward, nothing will ever be clean, your house, your kitchen, your car, your shirt, or your language. And to help keep things organized during kids' birthday parties, post a sign stating that all unattended children will receive espresso and a free puppy. And if you want all children to know you're in charge, change the Wi-Fi password at the time they're supposed to be sleeping. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 